Father, it is with great anticipation for your spirit to work that we look into your word this morning. So I pray that your spirit would lead and move and that Christ would be honored and glorified. Help us to see the impurities in our lives and pray that your spirit would convict and cause repentance and change in a way that will ultimately change the way that your body expresses your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just going to be up front. We're going to talk about sexuality. Now, there is uh, there are different ways to, to talk about sexuality and one of the ways in which we can talk about biblical healthy sexuality is to talk about how the Bible describes a healthy, uh, ma- uh, healthy marriage and healthy sexuality within marriage. And that's not exactly what Paul's talking about today. So if you want to hear a sermon like that, you can go on our website or on my podcast, uh, which has all our sermons. Both of those have all our sermons. And go look up sermons from 1 Corinthians 7 that I preached maybe a couple years ago now. Um, those are some good texts and some good sermons about what a healthy marriage looks like sexually. And uh, in this text, however, Paul does not take a, hey guys, this is what a healthy marriage looks like. Paul is more addressing the sin, the unhealthy version of sexuality and the impurity of perverted sexuality, and that's how he addresses things in this text. And it all boils down to sin and our sin nature and our flesh. Sin is not its own external entity that operates without a host. Sin is not a person, it's not a being, it has no mind, no will, no autonomy. We, we are sin. Sin only works in us when we choose to express it. Though we often speak of sin anthropomorphically, and and that makes sense that we give sin anthropomorphic descriptions, and anthropomorphic means giving something like human-like characteristics, uh, right? Like God the Father does not have a hand, a physical hand, yet Scripture describes his hand or his eyes or his mouth Yet he does not have those things. That's an anthropomorphic description of God. And we do that with sin. And it makes sense. Like Genesis 4-7 says that sin is crouching at your door. And that doesn't mean that sin is this being that's waiting for you. And we often sometimes also say that, oh, Satan is sin. Satan isn't sin. Satan is full of sin and evil. But he himself is not your sin. We are the sin bearers. So we often give sin this like anthropomorphic description that it has its own volition and agency, but it's really just we who are doing the sinning. It is not sin doing anything to us. It's us. We are the problem. We often kind of just say, oh, it's it's sin in my life. (laughs) It's sin. Like sin is something that made you do it. No, it's you. You made you do it. Satan didn't make you do it. Sin didn't make you do it. Your flesh, your flesh 
made you do sin. And we do it because we're born into sinful nature. The Psalm 51 that Christian just walked us through, David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. We are conceived into a sinful nature. And so that is why scripture equates our sinful nature to our flesh, because our sinful nature is us. It's our flesh. Because sin is the expression of our fallen nature revealed. Okay, sin is the expression of our sinful flesh, our nature that's fallen, revealed. Sin itself is not necessarily measurable. It's holiness that makes sin measurable. It's just like with heat and cold. We can measure heat. We can measure molecules and particles and whatever, however they measure heat, but they can measure heat. We can't measure cold. The way we measure cold is by measuring the absence of heat. So it is with holiness and sin. Holiness is measurable because God is the measure. Perfection is the measure. God is the standard. And sin is the absence of measurable holiness. And it's expressed in the things that we do. So we can measure sin by the things that we do, but the only reason we identify it as sin is because it lacks holiness. Now, on our own, we're going to lose that battle against our flesh every time. But in Christ and with his righteousness in us, we are conquerors over sin because of Jesus. That's, that's the good news. The bad news is sin is in us. You're sin. Your flesh is sin. You're a sinner, right? But the good news is in Christ, he conquers your sin, destroys your flesh, creates a new man, regenerates your heart, gives you by his grace and his love, gives you his perfect righteousness with which you are now capable and able to operate within. You now can express righteousness. You are free to do what's right. You couldn't do that without Christ. You are a slave to sin, Romans 6. And in Christ, you become a slave to righteousness, Romans 6.18. And so, now in Christ, we have this great good news that we don't have to sin anymore. Our flesh has been conquered. The sin nature has been destroyed. We can choose righteousness. And all of that is vital to understand if we're going to obey God's commands in Colossians 3.5 to put sin to death. And as we talk about putting sin to death, I just want you to understand this underlying reality, this under, underlying theological, doctrinal, really important truth that the only way in which you can do anything good or any follow any biblical command or the only way in which you can put sin to death is because Christ already has. So though we wrestle against the enemy, Satan, and he is an external force of evil, our battleground, and Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. He's meaning, he means we're not wrestling against other people. Other people aren't the problem. Satan's the problem. He says we wrestle against the enemy. But where does the enemy battle us? In our minds. Our mind is the battleground. Our battleground is within us because that's where sin is, within us. Our battleground is our mind and it's against our flesh. So to put sin to death, we must be victorious in our minds, which Christ has already purchased for us. We just need to pursue it which means we need to have the mind of Christ, which we can only gain if we are what? 
in the word. Who said that? I like that. You've heard that before, haven't you? Yeah, we say that sometimes. So let me show you what that looks like in Colossians 3.5. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice the severity of Paul's words. Put to death. This is not a game. This is not meant to be taken lightly. This is not the language of a lot of 21st century churches in America who kind of just flippantly and loosely excuse their sin. We do it. I do it sometimes. I catch myself doing it. I'll be talking to a friend and be like, ah, remember that time when I did that really stupid sinful thing? We're like, ah, yeah. Like, it's funny. And it's, it's not funny. It's evil. It's sin. It's wickedness. It, it, God hates that sin. And, and, and what's even worse than just him hating that sin is I'm his child. I'm a believer. I have Christ in me. And yet I oftentimes behave as if I'm not that And so it's one thing for God to look at sin in an unbeliever and go, I hate that sin. And according to Psalm 5.5, he also hates the sin doer. But for him also, or for him then to look at a believer and go, you're supposed to be different. I paid for your difference. So the sin that you do is very unbefitting of who I made you to be. It's very unbefitting of who Christ is in you. We should not take this lightly. We're to put it to death. That means make war against your flesh. Take it seriously. Take sin seriously. It wants to kill you. Kill you. Not just kill your physical body, which it also does, but to kill your soul. It wants to murder your soul and send you to hell. That's the desire of your flesh. Your flesh hates God. It does not want goodness. It does not want holiness. It does not want righteousness. It wants death. It wants self. It wants its own glory. That's what you're battling against. And the enemy, Satan, 1 Peter, is a roaring lion waiting in the weeds, seeking someone to devour. The enemy hates you. Your sin wants self-glorification and death. This is a serious battle we face, and we face it every day. This takes diligence, endurance, hard work. You you need to be in the Word and in prayer and fighting and praying. This is not, Christianity should never be taken lightly. Not if this text is true. Not if our daily exercise as believers is to put sin to death. Instead, we do things like we say, oh, I struggle with that, I struggle with this. When oftentimes it's not a struggle at all. We just willingly do these things. And then we say the word struggle as if we're battling against it really hard. No, we're not. Now there are definitely sins in which we are fighting hard to defeat. Oftentimes it's because we're fighting in our own power to defeat those sins. You can't do it on your own. Never could, never will. Only Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can cause that obedience. It requires repentance and submission and brokenness so that Psalm 51, in our brokenness, he will restore to us the joy of our salvation. 
We say we struggle with sin. We're not struggling with it. We play with it. We toy with it. We flirt with it. We're supposed to put it to death. When you hunt deer with a bow, do you take your bow out of your quiver and climb down the tree when the deer come over and you walk over and you take your bow and you take your arrow and just you poke the deer and then you tickle the deer and you poke it and poke it and you go, ha ha, poke, 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 poke. Do you play with the deer? Do you flirt with it? Do you toy with it? What's that going to get you? One of two things. A swift kick to the face by a hind leg or an antler in your gut. You're going to die. <laughs> like, or it runs away. Okay, that's the third option. But Still, we don't toy with that which we are trying to kill. Why do you go hunting? To kill. So put it to death. Don't toy with it or it will fight back. And you will lose those battles. Don't flirt with it. Put it to death. Don't just go, oh, I'll just look a little bit as we scroll our phone. Oh, I'll just take a peek. Oh, it's just, I'll, I'll be okay this time. No, you won't. That's flirting. Flirting leads to death. So there's a reason for the severity of this language, put to death. And Paul will counter this idea of put to death. On a more positive note, when we get further into the text, when he, says, when he tells us what to put on. So we'll see the, the opposite of this later. But right now, let's, it's, it begins with this recognition of the severity of our sin. And he says the word therefore, put to death, therefore. And that word therefore tells us that this command to put these sins to death is the product of what Paul teaches in verses 1 through 4 which is that believers should set their minds on Christ and seek Christ, which you cannot do if you are satisfying the desires of your sinful flesh. Meaning that which is earthly in you is your flesh, your sin, and to continue in these sins is unbefitting of one who calls themselves a slave to Christ. When really you say you're a slave to Christ, but you're a slave to your sin. And what Paul says in Romans 6 is, that should not be the case. Whatever you submit yourself to, that you are a slave to. Either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So what's it going to be? Those are two options. You have two things that you can do. Sin or obey. One leads to death, one leads to righteousness. And he's talking to Christians. That's not an evangelism sermon. That text is not to unbelievers. That's to believers. You can choose sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So why must we put sin to death? Because death is on the line. That's what's on the line, death. It's, it's either us or sin. Death is for us or death is for sin. Either your sin must die or you will. And I'm talking to Christians because Paul's constantly talking, not just Paul, all the New Testament authors are constantly saying these things to Christians. He's not saying, hey, Christians, just so you know, this is the state of the unbelievers. If they keep sinning, they'll die. He's saying, Christians, if you continue to not put sin to death, you will die. Because if you can't ever put sin to death, it tells us that the Holy Spirit is not in you. Because the Holy Spirit will put sin to death. He will cause obedience. And this is the, the message that Paul was, this is the doctrine that Paul's preaching back in chapter 2, which is this concept, it's not legalism, that obedience is the product 
of the Holy Spirit. Obedience is what comes from those who are righteous in Christ. Those who are purchased by the blood of Jesus will obey. We will not be perfect any day of our lives until we are glorified. That's not what I'm saying. You will sin. You'll fall into sin. But how we respond tells us a lot. And when we claim grace, 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 and then still choose sin, that's Romans 6. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And we find this reality in other texts too, that to Christians, this is written, that either your sin must die or you will. Paul says in Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Romans 8, do you know how Romans 8 starts? So just put this verse in context. He's talking to Christians and he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 13 verses earlier, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know what that means? No guilt, no shame. Believers are not condemned. They are saved. They are secured. They will live according to the spirit of God, not the spirit of the law. That's verse 2. So for that reality to be the foundation of this verse says a lot. Because he's saying, genuine believers are not condemned. Period. And then he says to believers, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. What does that tell you? Christians don't live according to the flesh. And those who do aren't Christians. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying every time you sin, you lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. Romans 8.1, you're not condemned. And I'm not saying every time you sin, you should question your salvation. I'm not saying that either. We should have assurance of our salvation. But our assurance comes from pursuing obedience. And that when we sin, we are on our knees, broken and distraught over our sin and, and repenting like, like David in Psalm 51. You couldn't have picked a better text this morning for communion. It is so fitting to this text. And then he set, finishes verse 13 this way. And this is, this is always the but. The but is the best word in the Bible. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 3, but God. Uh, Romans 8, 13 here. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now notice something. But if by the Spirit, you take that phrase out and says, but if you put to death the deeds of the body, you can stop right there. You can't. You can't. You have flesh we already discovered the flesh is of no avail to righteousness. The flesh will earn you nothing. It cannot do good. It never will. So how do we put evil deeds, how do we put sinful deeds to death? By the Spirit. And when he works, you will live. Paul is calling all believers to remove from their lives all the things that oppose godliness. Jesus' greatest desire was to do what? To please his Father. That's all he wants to do. And that's exactly what he did. John 6, 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And if we are in Christ, and we are to be like Christ and grow into Christ's likeness, then our desire should also be to please the Father like Jesus. But if we're doing these sins and living in them, then we are living and acting in the flesh. And Romans 8.8 8 says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
So, our motivation should be to kill these sins in our lives. And the only reason we can put these sins to death is because Jesus has already conquered sin and death. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we... Why? Why did he do that? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Because we typically say, why did Jesus die for you? For my salvation. That's such a broad statement. What do you mean by for my salvation? What is salvation? It means I'm justified because my sin is is conquered. My sin is paid for. And so my sin is removed and the righteousness of Christ is put in me. That's justification. And I am deemed by God, considered by God forever and eternally his. Forgiven and saved. That's not all salvation. That's the first part of salvation. The second part of salvation is sanctification, which is this process of spiritual growth. Basically, what sanctification is, you learning how to obey. You becoming more righteous. You, day by day, expressing more and more and more of the righteousness of Christ that he has put in you. And then the final part of salvation is glorification. When God effectually secures what he put in you, perfection. We tend to think of salvation as just this broad word that's like, what do, why did Jesus die for my sins? So I can go to heaven. Well, yeah, that's, that's glorification. But what about sanctification? We don't talk about what Jesus died for in sanctification. Why did Jesus die? So I could kill sin today and tomorrow and next week and until the day that I die. Well, that sounds exhausting. Yeah, it is. It's super exhausting. And we lose many battles. And that's why the scripture is filled with language like endure, pursue, fight the good fight, finish the race. I know you're tired. You guys ever run a 5K or a half marathon or a full marathon? I ran a lot of 5Ks. I ran a half marathon thinking one day I'd run a full one. And then after I ran the half marathon, I was like, that's good enough probably. So I ran that half marathon. I got to the halfway point. And there was just, a, it was just you run, run one way, there's a cone in the middle of the track, and then you, you turn around and come back the other way. To turn around the cone, I had to slow down. The moment I slowed down, I was like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to pick back up again. <laughs> Pretty much done at this point, and I wanted to just walk. And all you have to do is tell yourself, don't give up! Don't give up! You have to keep moving. It hurts, and when you cross the finish line, you get glory, Mark! Keep going, man! That's just physical. That's just a race. How much more significant and how much more important is the race of your life, is the race for your life. I am not suggesting in any way that you can earn your salvation by being obedient. Not at all. What I'm suggesting is that as you become obedient, it is the Holy Spirit who is expressing what Christ has already earned for you. We just need to fall into absolute submission to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says submission begins right here in this book. So, we are not saved. He did not just die so we could just go to heaven. He died so we could run to heaven. 
which means daily living out this expression that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Because Jesus has already done the sin conquering. And because Romans 6 says that we join him in a resurrection to a new life, Paul then writes in Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So our ability and our desire to put to death the sin in us is only possible because Jesus already claimed victory over sin and death. And in doing so, he gives his spirit to his elect children and in the spirit we're able to express his victory over sin by putting sin to death. So, what are these sins specifically that we must put to death? Paul gives us a list in Colossians 3, 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. That word might say lust in your text. That would be a fitting word as well. Evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So we'll go through them one by one. Sexual morality. The Greek word there is porneia, from which we get our English word pornography. But this word has a wider meaning in the New Testament. Porneia is a reference to any form of sexual activity or sexual thoughts that is not performed in the marriage bed. God created sexuality for marriage and marriage alone. Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And we'll see in verse 6 next week that that judgment I mean, how often do we read Bible verses that say things like this, let the marriage be held in honor and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Well, I'm a believer, so God can't judge me. And if I sin, I can just be like, well, I'm forgiven by grace. Please show me a verse that says that's how you should think because it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. We think that way. Because we're so grace-fixed, which is amazing, but we forget that grace is meant to cause us to, or lead us to righteousness. And what we'll see in verse 6 is that this judgment on the sexually immoral and adulterous is real and, and severe and serious. So sex, uh, sexual morality is really the heartbeat of this list. When we talk about, as I was talking earlier about sin, putting sin to death, and living in the righteousness of Christ, the sin that we're talking about, the sin that Paul is talking about, is sexual morality. Sexual morality is really the heartbeat of this entire list. And I think that's for good reason. Because the biggest sin in the church is sexual morality. Like, I don't even think it's close. I think it's hands down the biggest problem in the church. How many times have you been at prayer with other believers and you ask for prayer requests and people are like, oh yeah, I'm struggling with sexual morality and lust and adultery. Because everyone will be like, what, you're doing what now? Uh, we need to talk. Instead it's like, hey, we pray for my grandma, she's sick. Oh, I'm traveling, we just pray for my travels. That's great, of course we want to pray for those things. Let's pray about our sin. 
Let's get down and into the dirty mire and mucky grossness of our future disgusting sinful things that we love to do. Let's be honest about it. And the reason we're not honest about sexual, sexual sin is because it is the most shamed thing in the world. And the church shames people for having sexual sin. But the reality is 95% of us do. I went to a Promise Keepers event. You know, Promise Keepers is big men's conference. It's all about, oh, it's all be godly men. It's, it, was, it was really interesting because they do just like these sessions. It's like worship music and then a little sermon, and they just do, you know, session by session. We get to this one session, and before every session, there's a huge, huge screen up top, and the screen asks a question. It's a survey for everyone who's there. There's probably seven, 8,000 men. Think of a huge basketball stadium filled with men, thousands of men, and Probably some women there too, but mostly men. And there's a survey question that comes up on the screen right before the session starts. And you text to the number they put up there and you answer the survey question. And it feeds right to the screen live results of everyone in that building who's answering that question. And the question was, what is your greatest sin struggle? And it listed like 10 or 15 sins. And there are a whole, 14 of them had about one or two people each. Sexual morality slash pornography over it was over i don't remember exactly what it was but it was over 95 percent of the men in that building said that's their biggest struggle pornography at a christian conference i'm not condemning those men i'm saying is that not a telltale sign that it's a real problem that we're kind of ignoring well, paul says put him to death and we don't because we can't talk about it. I can't tell people that. They'll think I'm a pervert. They'll think I'm gross. I will be shamed. I'll be ridiculed. I'll be judged. And I'll feel guilty because they'll make me feel guilty. The church offers no grace to sexual sin. Grace, grace, grace to everything anyone ever does. And so what do people do? Because they know the church won't offer grace for sexual sin. They go, I have to offer it to myself. So I'm just going to live in this little world, this little box where I'm like, it's okay, I'm covered by grace. Oops, I sinned again. It's okay, I'm covered by grace. Oops, I performed sexual sin again. It's okay, I'm covered by grace. Well, what if I just tell the church, nope, that's not going to work. I'll get shamed. Psalm 25, 3. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. None who wait on God shall be put to shame. What a glorious exaltation of the grace and, and righteousness of Jesus Christ for a man to come forward and say, I'm struggling with sexual sin and I need help. What a glorious moment of righteousness to come forth and for the church to surround that man and go, you are loved and we are going to pray. Impurity is the next one on the list, and impurity and, and sexual morality are both sins that, that Paul lists in Galatians chapter 5 as works of the flesh. All impurities are not sexual morality, but all sexual morality is impurity. And impurity is essentially a perversion of anything holy. It tends to show up most prominently in our perversion of sexuality, but this word covers all areas of the heart and mind and actions. We are inclined to defile everything good because our flesh and our hearts ooze impurity. 
Jesus said in Mark 7, 21 through 23, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, enver, en- en- envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. Let me rephrase that. All these evil things come from you, me, and they defile a person. So for anyone who says things like, God knows my heart, or just follow your heart, or what is your heart telling you to do? Might want to check with scripture on where your heart is inclined to lead you, because Jeremiah 17, 9 casts your heart as the source, the source of your sinfulness and the sickest part of who you are. It says the heart is deceitful. In second place, the heart is the fourth most or tenth most deceitful thing in you. No, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Desperate for evil. Desperate for wickedness. Desperate for sin. That's your heart. Don't follow it. I got a better idea. God gave us something to follow. Your Bible. Like, it's that simple. He just flips the script. He's like, you know what? Don't follow your heart. That's sinful. It's always going to lead you to sin. Follow the word. And through the word, I will recondition your heart. He regenerates our heart in the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. He gives us a new heart. And that new heart is being sanctified daily. And we need the word to sanctify the heart. So don't follow the heart. Follow the word. It will retrain your heart. Our hearts without Christ can only putrefy all things, making everything we do, think, or say impure. And as impure thoughts enter our mind, Paul says, this is how you handle those impure thoughts. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Why? Because Ephesians 5.3 says sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you. Must not. Must not be named among you. Why? It is not proper for the saints. As I said before, it's not befitting to call yourself a Christian and live in these sins and not make war with them. Believers are marked by putting impurity to death, not by living in impurity and claiming that grace is sufficient to cover sins as a justification to not feel bad about your sin. That's why we do it. I don't want to feel bad about it. You should feel bad about it. It's evil and it's wicked and it's sin and it opposes who you are in Christ. That bad feeling is not meant to make you feel guilty. I'm not saying you should feel bad because I want you to feel guilt and shame. Not at all. That bad feeling is there on purpose. It was put in you by the Holy Spirit. It's called conviction. And conviction is meant to cause you to hate your sin, to make war with it, and create holiness. The holiness that is already waiting for you in Christ. And to be holy, we must kill sin. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Meaning it's not okay to just continue in sin because grace covers your sin. Grace was never meant to excuse your sin. It was meant to kill your sin. Now we get to these next two words, passion and evil desire, or lust and evil desire. You could really just say 
lust and lustful desire. There's only one minor distinction. There's really only a minor distinction between passion and evil desire. Both words refer to sexual immorality. The main difference is that passion is uh, the physical expression of sexual immorality, while evil desire are the thoughts and the intentions of sexual immorality. So essentially passion is physical and evil desire is mental, but both are sexual impurities and they are perversions of biblical purity and healthy God-honoring sexual activity designed for marriage. And these impure expressions of sexual morality are drastically opposed to and counterintuitive to and offensive to God-glorifying Christian living. We are to be unlike the world, not like the world. Our behavior is the difference because our, ha- our behavior expresses what the Spirit is doing in our hearts and minds. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, for this is the will of God. Now listen, I've said this before. There are a lot of commands in the Bible. Very few of them start with this is the will of God. But when God decides to take a command and say, uh, just a little uh, disclaimer here, this is my will. Like, when God gives a command, that's his will for you. Period. It's his will of command. Don't eat that. Don't do this. Don't say that. Don't behave like that. That's God's will for your life. When God has to stop and clarify, um, excuse me, just to be sure, this is a big one. I want you to understand, this is my will for you. That you abstain from sexual morality. Why? So that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And just because he mentions the godless Gentiles doesn't mean that this is about evangelism. This isn't about evangelism. This is about holiness. This, Paul isn't saying that we should be unlike unbelievers so they can see how different we are and then they can know God. Now that reality is in the Bible. Jesus even talks about it. But that's not what Paul's saying here in 1 Thessalonians 4. He is saying that we are called to God for holiness. Saving others isn't the motivation for purity. Why? Because you can hide your impurities from others. Being holy to God for his glory in you, that's the motivation. Our motivation is not for the salvation of others. That is a product of it, but that's not our motivation. Our motivation is to give God back what he gave us, holiness. Because it brings him honor and it glorifies him. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 6, Your father who is in secret sees in secret. So putting up a front might cut it for people. I mean, this is a, this is a kindergarten truth. God knows. He knows. He knows. I mean, let's just stop and think about that for a moment. He's watching. Oh, that gives me, like, goosebumps. It kind of makes me sick to my stomach a little bit because I think about all the sins I've done in my life, and I'm like, what was, he, what was he thinking when he was watching me do that? And what you believe about God will determine how you view what he's thinking when he watches you sin. Scripture says it grieves the Holy Spirit. 
Ephesians 2 says, but God, who is rich in mercy, rich in mercy, looks at you and watches you while you sin and says, that is not what I made that body for. So, we get some warnings in Scripture that help us. I'm going to to read a warning for you. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5, we're going to read the whole thing. This is wisdom. This is wisdom. This is God himself speaking wisdom to you. Men, listen up. This woman that's described here can be any woman in any location, at any place, anywhere. She could be real. She could be fake. You could know her or she could be on a screen somewhere. She could be a picture or a video or just made up in your mind. She could be in your mind while you're in your bedroom with your wife. She could be anything or anywhere that you find her, and she's not hard to find. But listen to what she does. My son, Proverbs 5.1, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Can we just start there and just recognize this is worth listening to? Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. And do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house. Don't open that app. Don't go to that website. Don't call her. Don't call him. Don't flirt. Don't tease. Don't play. Don't toy. Put it to death. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner what's designed for your spouse does not go to someone else verse 11 and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed And you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. We just take a break right there and just recognize that. How you respond to this message today determines whether you say that at the end of your life or not. How you respond to this message today determines whether you say this verse at the end of your life or not. It has nothing to do with me. This is the word, and this is the truth. Not because Mark said it, because God's saying it. Verse 13, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. 
I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern. Have sex with your own wife. Flowing water from your own well. Have sex with your own husband. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Lest your fountain, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for a lack of discipline. Because of his great folly, he is led astray. When we take sexual sin lightly, maybe we should go back to Proverbs 5 and read it and recognize God doesn't take it lightly. A warning exists for a reason. It's not to condemn you. It's to satisfy you. You ever think about that? That warning is not to hurt you, to harm you, to make you feel guilty, to judge you, to condemn you. It is to satisfy you. In your spouse. Now, single people, you don't have that spouse yet. Save it. That's the message. You have two choices remain single and abstinent for the rest of your life. And Paul says that's even better for him personally. He doesn't say it's a rule, he doesn't say that's what you should do. He's just saying, you want to serve God endlessly with all your life? Be, be single and stay single so that you're not distracted by a spouse. Believe it or not, God calls your spouse a distraction. But once you're married, he goes, okay, they're not a distraction anymore. Love them really well. Did someone just say, phew? <laughs> so I'm like, woof. Okay, it's okay that I'm married. Yes, it's a glorious and great expression of the gospel. It is designed by God for his glory and for your joy and for your sex, sexual satisfaction and also for procreation, and also to reveal the gospel, and also to show how God treats his children, how way you treat your children, and your children come from your sexual interactions. Okay, so all of this is for the gospel, but he also says, hey, being single, whoa, it's so good. Because I just get to, I get to die for Jesus instead. Right? Yeah! Amen! Let's die for Jesus. I don't need a spouse. I don't want to drag my spouse into the jail cell. I don't want to watch my wife die in jail with me. Why get married and put a woman through that? I want to go to jail and die for Jesus. That's what Paul's thinking. Serve Christ with the entirety of my life. That's my goal. Now go ahead and get married. Because, you, because our bodies were not created to not have sex. We, they were created for it. And in our sinful flesh, we pervert it and we ruin it. And we ruin marriages and ruined marriages. It makes, makes ruined families and ruined families make destructive, destroyed, ruined churches. And, 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 and so unhealthy churches likely find their root in unhealthy sexual sin in men because they're the ones who are to lead the family. Instead, they're perverted by sin. I'm not calling men perverts. I'm saying they have perverted healthy sexuality and turned it into sin. 
And it's ruining families because it's ruining marriages. And it's ruining the church because it's ruining families. Men, specifically, and don't get me wrong, we know statistically, women, you are not, not you specifically, women are not far behind men statistically in use of pornography or sexual sin. It is not that big of a difference. We tend to think, oh, it's a man thing. Not even close. It's not just a man thing. I'm calling on men because they are to lead their families. So, moving on to the last word, Paul puts this word covetousness, which seems to have nothing to do with sexuality. And he puts it at the end of his list for two reasons. Number one, he has this description by calling it idolatry. Number two, it is the root sin behind the other sins that he just mentioned. The Greek word is pleonexia, which is a compound word coming from a Greek word pleon, meaning more, and exo, meaning have. So covetousness is an insatiable desire to have more. And specifically, it is an insatiable desire to have more of what is forbidden, Proverbs 5. Meaning it is the source of lust and impurity and sin. It amounts to idolatry because it places your desires above God's desires. And it places your desires of the flesh over obedience to God's word. It is idolatry because it exalts our wants over God's commands. It places us at the center of our purposes. It makes the desires of our wicked hearts more valuable than the pursuit of holiness in God that he has purchased for us in Christ. That's why it's idolatry. And that is the root of why we pursue sexual sin. It is quite literally the opposite of being like Christ as Jesus was fully, Jesus was fully, 100% invested in the Father's will, which I read earlier. And covetous idolatry is fully opposed to the Father's will because covetous idolatry says, I want what God has not given me. So what that means is that the way we can put all these sins to death, all this sexual immorality to death, is to put covetousness to death. We need to believe and value and desire God's will over our own. And God's will for you, remember 1 Thessalonians 4? This is my will for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is my will for you, that you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely, dear, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. That is God's will for you. We need to believe that and value that and desire God's will over our own. If we do that, this, this entire list of sins will become unattractive to us as we pursue and desire the holiness that God has placed in us in Christ. So how do we put covetousness to death? Because what does, covetous, what does covetousness say? It says, I want what God has not given me. So how do we put it to death? With what? Contentment. Contentment. It sounds so simple. How do you put sexual sin to death? Contentment. Paul writes in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I'm content with my wife, with her body, with her voice, with her love, with her home, with her presence, with her children. 
I have no need to find any other false satisfaction anywhere else because I'm content with the woman that God has given me. Women, same for you. Content with your husband's body, with his voice, with his love, with his presence, with his gifts, with his service, with his work, with everything that he gives to you. And we should all be content in those things. Well, what if their body isn't so great anymore? You know what happens when you hit certain age, right? How many women look in the mirror and go, <laughs> I hate my body now. How many men look in the mirror and pretend like they don't hate their body so they suck their stomach in and flex really hard? <laughs> yeah, I look good. I put this shirt on this morning and I was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> Seriously. So, <laughs> what, what do we do then? What if their body doesn't satisfy me the way it used to? What if I married them when they were 22 and slender and fit and really attractive and now they're older and they had kids and Things are different. Or what if their love for, for me has withered and then my love has withered? And what if their presence has become contentious and vexing? And to be honest, I really can't stand being around this person anymore. Or you add mixtures of all those things together and you've got this very unsatisfying and un, unhappy marriage. And then what we do is one of two things. Uh, we seek, well, we do one thing really. We seek that joy somewhere else because we're not content with what God has given us. So there's two things we should do. First, be content still. They are your gift from God. Love them no matter what. To reject them as your pleasure is to reject the goodness of God's gift and is an insult to God's wisdom for you. Do you realize that 1 Corinthians 7 says that your spouse's body is yours? Your body is, belongs to your spouse and, and your spouse's body belongs to you. You have the freedom and the authority to tell your spouse what to do with their body. And they have the freedom and authority to tell you what to do with your body. And you have the freedom and authority to say, that body is mine and I want it. Obviously, there's an amount of respect and understanding that needs to go into each of those situations. Right? And some wisdom. Okay? Men, don't go home. <laughs> don't go home. You heard what Pastor said. Let's go. All right? Wisdom, patience, understanding, right? Here's the second thing. Instead of looking at your spouse as the source of your lack of contentment in them, like, well, their body isn't the same. They don't behave the same. They don't like their attitude. They don't treat me well. They're just not as beautiful as they used to be. Whatever your reason. They don't cook like they used to cook. I don't know what your reason could be. Whatever reason has led you to dissatisfaction, let me tell you, if you're performing sexual immorality, there is a dissatisfaction in your spouse, period. Don't deny it. It's true. Instead of looking at your spouse as the source of your lack of contentment, why don't we look at ourselves as the source of their lack, of your lack of contentment? If your spouse is dissatisfying to you because they are no longer as pleasant to you, either physically, emotionally, or relationally, then consider that people always reflect their environment. Their displeasure to you is likely a reflection of how you make them feel. Your lack of contentment in your spouse is pouring out of you and they're picking up your displeasure and carrying it around until, or carrying it around every day, really, until the day 
you realize that you have actualized your displeasure in them to the point where they have become the very thing you created dissatisfying. And then you feel justified in your impure sexual sin. The solution is contentment with what God has given you. And contentment requires trust in God that what you have is his will for you. And trust in God comes from knowledge of God which we gain when we are in the word. This is always, always, always the solution. Always the solution. Always the solution. The solution to getting rid of pornography is not throwing your phone in the lake. That helps. It is not smashing your computer with a bat. That helps. But it does not deal with lust. That's in here. We deal with lust in here by dealing with what our heart thinks and feels about God. Our heart, the thing that we call our heart, is really our mind. We behave according to how we think. How do we change how we think? How do I change the way that I think about sin and sex and God and my marriage and my wife or my husband and how I live and the things that I do and how I conquer sin and beat sin and defeat sin and put sin to death? How do I process that stuff? I have to change the way that I think. I have to have the mind of Christ. Where do I get the mind of Christ? The Word of God. How do I build contentment that destroys sexual sin in my life? The word of God, period. Read it, study it, dive into it, drink it, consume it. Oh, taste and see that God is good. He's so good. His word is good. It's food. It is your sustenance. It is the solution to your sexual sin. It will tell you what to confess and when to confess it. It'll tell you how to defeat your sin. It'll tell you what is sin. It'll give you and develop in you the mind of Christ that tells you how to conquer sin and where to go with your sin and, and how to live in righteousness and how to choose righteousness. And tell, it'll tell you what's obedience and what's disobedience. It will teach you and tell you and speak to you. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in believers and he will clarify and enlighten the word of God to your heart and mind and change the way that you live and think and you will become more holy. You will start to choose righteousness, not sin, and your marriage will shine and your children will grow and Jesus will be exalted in your family and your family will exalt Jesus in the church and the church will become the very thing that Jesus created to be perfect and righteous and holy and blameless on the day of glorification. That's who we need to be. And it begins in the word. Let's pray. We humbly admit in your presence, God, that probably every person in this room struggles to a certain extent with lust, with sexual, impure thoughts, and or actions. And we lay them at your feet as a church collectively and we say, God, only you and only you and only you in Christ can conquer these sins in our lives. Rid the church, wring it out, purify us of this sexual sin and create in us obedience. Help us by the power of your spirit put to death these sins, so we can live to righteousness. That will make us very happy people in you, and you will be very glorified. 
Make it a reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.